All right, if you have a Bible, let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to begin. Uh, we have some other passages we'll be looking at this morning, and as you are turning there, if you're a guest with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. Uh, in your bulletin, there are two things. There's a connection card in which you could fill out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us, and you can drop that in the basket at the exit door, and there is a gift for you on your way out this morning. And there are also message notes. Uh, it kind of helps you track along with where I'm going in this message. And we're in this series, The Power of a Praying Church, and we've been talking about the importance of prayer. And certainly the question, big question is, well, how should we pray? And what is the, you know, what's an effective way to pray? And, and how does God move in response to our prayers? And so we've taken the model prayer that Jesus gave to us uh, as he was giving it to his disciples when they asked him the question, Lord, teach us to pray. It's the only question they Ask him. They didn't ask him to teach him how to do greater miracles or how to preach sermons or all those things, but they did ask him to say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. There's something unique and different about Jesus when he came out of his private time with his heavenly father that forever changed the trajectory of not only the disciples' lives, but certainly all of creation. So here we are in Matthew chapter 6, and in this statement that we're going to look at, uh, the next section of prayer that Jesus gives to us. He said, give us this day our daily bread. And he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I want you to underline a word there, the word debt, okay, and debtors. Uh, these, these, we're going to be spending two weeks on this one verse. Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's very significant that you understand that Jesus was very careful about the word he chose here. He didn't say, forgive us our sins as we forgive other sinners. He said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When I was a, a kid growing up, long before Dr. J, Magic, or Air Jordan, there was, a, there was a pistol. His name was Pistol Pete Maravich. How many of you remember Pistol Pete Maravich? All these basketball fans, the rest of you are going like, who in the world is that? All right, so he was like a, a skinny white kid from LSU who was just an absolutely phenomenal uh, basketball player. He always wore these socks that were like, you know, looked like they were three sizes too big for him. But he was a master at, you know, the behind the back pass, over the shoulder, looking off the opposite way. And uh, Pistol Pete Maravich in the NCAA Division I was the all-time leading scorer. And I think that record still stands today. But what really attracted people to him was his gamemanship. I mean, he was, he was just like, he was magical on the court. He set, and again, I believe this is, you know, still standing, the Division I record of, in one season, he's averaged 44.5 points a game, a game. In his entire career, he averaged 44.2 points a game. I mean, it's just an absolutely phenomenal career. He scored 3,667 points during his college career, and then he was picked up in the NBA and again, he was very effective as, as a guard. I mean, he was five times on the, you know, the all-star teams. He was voted among the league's most 50 um, greatest players of all time in the NBA when he retired. And on January the 5th of 1998, uh, when he had retired and he's you know, no longer in this 70-plus game grueling schedule for the year, he was in a pickup basketball game with several other people, one of which was James Dobson, the head of Focus on the Family, because he was going to be on his radio program later that afternoon. But as he was playing in this pickup game, 
Pistol Pete Maravich dropped dead of a heart attack and died at age 40. And upon an autopsy, it revealed that his death was due to a previously undiagnosed congenital heart defect. He had been born with only one coronary artery rather than the normal two. And so one of the sobering truth is this, is a person's physical prowess doesn't always reflect the health of their heart. And so if Pistol Pete would have had an arteriogram where they put dye in your arteries and x-ray it at some point in his life, they would have discovered his heart defect and could have treated it as such. But he had never had that done. You might ask, well, didn't he not at least you know, experience some side effects from only having one coronary artery? And the answer is probably so. But from my understanding, arterial blockage can manifest itself in things like back pain, inability to sleep, anxiety, loss of appetite, indigestion, nausea, vision change, and loss of memory. And so if you went to the doctor with those kinds of symptoms, they're not going to assume that you have a heart problem. They're going to treat the symptoms without actually treating the heart. And that is really a warning to all of us, is that we can so treat the symptoms of what's going on physically that we mask the true culprit, which is a heart issue. And that delays treatment, which thus allows the problem to worsen. Now, just as a heart attack, a physical heart attack, uh, can be very damaging to your body and in your physical life, and so it is with heart disease, because it has the potential, spiritual heart disease has the potential to destroy you and to squeeze life out of your most valuable relationships, which is between you and God, as well as other people. When Jesus narrowed down the, the commandments, all the commandments of the Old Testament, he said, love God and love others. So those are the two, two most valuable relationships you have. But if you don't understand, you also have a spiritual heart issue. You can destroy those relationships. You can damage those relationships. Jesus talked all the time about things like evil thoughts and murder and adultery and slander and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony. He said they're all issues of the heart. But watch this. They are merely symptoms of the heart issue. The issue that people really have, the heart of the issue is the issue of the human heart. But what we do is we tend to, to treat the, the symptoms, but we never get to the real root cause of why we're having those symptoms. What is displaying them? What's causing us to act this way? Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. We have heart issues that come out in our behaviors, but we have learned how to curtail those behaviors given the circumstances we find ourselves in. For example, you may never think about coming into a worship service and just start cussing up a storm, but you may do that at work. Maybe you do that at home. You may do it in other places, but you've learned how to curtail that behavior given the environment that you find yourself in. So when you look at your life and you look at you know, your behaviors at work or home, church, school, public, private, are they constant? Are they, are they the same across the board? Or do you curtail certain symptoms? So here's the problem with heart issues is that when the symptoms start coming to the surface and we, we try to push them down, it's only a matter of time before they come back again. And, and they burst forth and they come out on the scene and all of a sudden we say things, do things that may highly embarrass us 
because we've learned how to curtail that in most environments, but something tripped us, and all of a sudden now maybe anger you know, hit you, and boom, you start saying some things that you normally wouldn't say in that environment. Kind of get the picture? There are four, there are four, count them four, arterial artery-blocking habits of our hearts that poisons our relationships, our faith, and our character. Every symptom that you have will, will trail itself right back to one of those four artery-clogging habits or issues of the heart. If I only treat the symptoms, I never treat the real issue. If I don't treat the real issue, it, it begins to grow and it begins to manifest itself and it begins to, to, you know, it loves secrecy, it loves darkness, it loves to hide, it does not want to be exposed. And so what Jesus wants to teach us in this prayer is that how we can expose those things, we can expose our heart so that we can bring it out into the open, we can bring it out into the light so that God begins to heal the heart, not just the symptoms. Because the symptoms are the result of the problem of the heart. You deal the, if you heal the heart, you'll no longer have the symptoms. But if I only try to heal the symptoms, I'll always have the issue of the heart. And so there's great parallel between a physical heart and a spiritual heart in our lives. So what are those four artery-blocking habits? Here they are. The first one is guilt. Guilt says, I owe you. I owe you. The second one is anger. Anger says, you owe me. You owe me. The third one is greed. Greed says, I owe myself. I owe myself. And the fourth one is jealousy. And jealousy says, God owes me. God owes me. And we're going to break these down in a moment. But I want you to notice there is a clear uh, relationship between all four of these. All four of these set up a debt-to-debtor relationship. A debt-to-debtor relationship. Something is owed, right? In each case, I owe you, you owe me, I owe myself, God owes me. And so a debt-to-debt relationship always causes imbalance in any relationship. For example, if you owe somebody money, let's say that you borrowed money from a family member that you've never repaid. And now Thanksgiving's coming up and all your families are getting together and you know that person's going to be there. You think that there would be a little tension in the room when you enter in and you know that he owes you and uh, you, that you owe him and, and he knows that you owe him. And so now all of a sudden, not, not only do you have a, uh, he have a sense of power over you, but you have a sense of power over him because it's like, uh, well, do I confront him? Do I, do I bring up the issue? You know, the last time I brought it up, it didn't go well, and, you know, so on and so forth. So it creates a lot of tension in the relationship. That's what a debt-to-debtor relationship does. It creates a magnificent amount of tension in that relationship. Now, there are only two ways you can resolve that kind of tension. Either you're going to pay the debt, or somebody is going to um, cancel the debt that you owe them. Let's say, for example... You know, you're sweating bullets, you walk in the room, this person comes up to you and you're thinking, oh no, I know what this is all about, I know I still owe money, and that person comes up to you and says, hey, um, good to see you again, I know it's been a while, we haven't talked for a while, I just want you to know, I know things have been a little hard for you and your family, I just want you to know, listen, 
the, amount of, the, the rest of the money you owe me, I'm canceling the debt. You don't need to repay me. Um, I'm, I, I, this is a gift to you. Now, all of a sudden, what has happened? You've broken the tension in the relationship. Now, all of a sudden, you can kind of sit back. You can relax. And maybe at first there might be like, well, you know, I, I don't know. Now I kind of feel guilty about that. And, but then all of a sudden the guilt goes away. And, and so this, this is the way a debt-to-debtor relationship operates is that the only way I can change the tension in the room is either I pay the debt or somebody forgives me of the debt. So how can I feel forgiven? How can I forgive others? How can this result in lasting change in my life is the subject matter for this week and and next. I really want to tackle the first part of this prayer that Jesus taught us about forgiving our, you know, Lord, forgive us our debts. And so I want to give you a pathway by which that can happen. But it's not an easy pathway in that, like, oh, I just, you know, just throw everything at God and say, forgive me, and just kind of move on. doesn't work that way. That will never result in change in your life. It's never going to resolve the tension between you and your heavenly Father. I want to give you a pathway that not only releases the tension, but absolutely brings change in your heart, in your life, because you're going to tackle the real heart issue that has led to the symptoms that is causing the problems that's resulted in forgiveness and unforgiveness and all those other issues. So here's step number one in the pathway is that I review, I must review my artery-blocking habits. So let's, let's pull back to the four things that I gave you. Guilt, I owe you. All right? Guilt is the result of having done something we perceive as wrong. Every wrong can be restated as an act of theft. Every wrong can be restated as an act of theft. I've stolen something from you. That's why I owe you. I may owe you an apology, or I may owe you money, but as far as you're concerned, I have stolen something from you. For example, have you ever bought a car, and uh, you, know, you go into the dealership, and you try to negotiate the best deal that you can, you sit down, you finally sign the papers for X number of dollars, and you come out of the dealership, and you feel so guilty about what you've just done? Because that song's going on in your mind now, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. Because uh, you know, you've got to pay all this money back, you just borrow, you feel guilty about that. Or let's take it even a step further. Let's say, and this can work both ways, consider a man who runs off with another woman and abandons his family. Without realizing it, he has just stolen something from every single member in his family. He has stolen from his wife, their marriage. He has stolen from her financial security, companionship. He has stolen from her all kinds of things. He's also robbed her of her future, perhaps. Even from the children's perspective, their dad has stolen their father away, that he has he is, uh, you know, stolen their emotional and, again, financial security. He has stolen family traditions, his presence in the house. And so there's something. Now, now, the person who did this, the man who committed the act, he doesn't view it as though he has stolen anything. In fact, he looks at it just the opposite. Rather than at least initially having taken any, all he can think about is what he's gained, right? He's gained this new lover that he desired and wanted and left his family for. But then somewhere down the road, when the daughter says to the father, 
Daddy, why don't you love mommy anymore? Now all of a sudden, guilt begins to twinge and hit his, hit his heart, and, and he has to come up with some kind of answer. And usually the man will say something, well, now honey, you need to understand your mother always, and she never did, and, and on and on it goes. And then it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like, and so the guy feels guilty. So what fathers do, they try to make up for it. Like, I feel guilty for what I've stolen from you. So it gets you all kinds of cool toys and things like that. But your father can't make up for it, right? So when my dad, you know, left with another woman, left my mother to raise children, and, and the things that we felt, I felt like he has stolen, like my childhood, how do you repay that? How do you pay back a childhood? You can't. But I feel like you owe me. And so... And there's this debt-to-debtor relationship. There's tension in the relationship all of a sudden. But there's no way to make up for the damage that has been done. And so dad owes, and, and, and this relationship has been established. And whatever, whenever you or I wrong another person, we create this same dynamic in the relationship. When we've adopted, and we've adopted you know, specific terminology to even deal with this. We th- say things like, I owe you an apology, or I owe you... Whatever, because we understand, we feel obligated to pay something, and nothing less than payment for the debt will relieve my guilty heart from this burden of guilt. So people try to try to work it off, serve it off, give it, pray it, you know, everything else. But either, either you got to pay the debt, or somebody has to cancel the debt. Could my dad pay the debt? Could he pay? Could he give me a childhood back? Absolutely not. So if we were going to alleviate tension in our relationship, guess where the burden fell? It's going to fall on me because I've got to cancel the debt. I've got to cancel what I feel like he owes me, which is the second half of Jesus' prayer, as we forgive our debtors. So this is the way this debt-to-debt relationship works and operates. Secondly is the area of anger. Anger says, you owe me. Anger is the result of not getting what we want, right? And what we want may include what we feel like we deserve, not just what we want. Think about the time when you were really angry. And isn't it true that the entire situation probably could have been reduced down to this simple idea? You wanted something, but you couldn't get it, or you didn't get it, right? So it just made you angry, right? I wanted this, couldn't have. James, in his, his epistle, he says, listen, the reason why there's quarreling and fighting among you, because you want something you cannot have. And so anger is the byproduct of that. Now run through this with my abandoned family scenario. Chances are you probably know one or two people whose father or mother may have run off. Can I assure you that those who have been abandoned, that they have some anger issues, right? Either they still have them or they had them and got over them or, you know, worked their way, processed it and worked their way through that anger. But there were a lot of anger issues within that family. And because, you know, dad made off with their opportunity to have a normal family and a normal family unit. Show me an angry person, I will show you a hurt person. Because pain always drives anger. When I'm hurt, when I'm in pain because of something somebody has done, then anger is the immediate, natural, normal human response. Now, what I do with that anger is another issue. But at least the anger is there. And if, it, if I leave it unchecked, anger always evolves into resentment, resentment into bitterness, bitterness into unforgiveness, 
and it becomes a real big heart issue because everything has to filter through that anger grid of your life. And as a result, we say things like, you know, you, you took my reputation, you stole my family, you took the best years of my life, or you, you stole our first marriage, you robbed me of my teenage years, you robbed me of my childhood, you, you owe me a second chance. So here's, the, here's my point, is the root of anger is the perception that something has been taken from you. Something is owed, and this debt-to-debt relationship has been established. Now beware of this. If anger is lodged in your heart, before long, you come to believe that everybody owes you, and you're angry with everyone over anything at any time. You ever been around a person who was characterized, man, that's an angry individual, because anger is the heart issue that's never been dealt with. Now, they may try to curtail the symptoms of that anger. And they might try to, you know, all of a sudden something happens because like on a scale one to 10, they're always on a nine. And it may be that somebody you work with and you come in and you say something that's not really that, you know, it's, it wasn't meant to hurt them or make them angry. And all of a sudden they just like explode all over you and say things and just like, boom, and you're like, whoa, you know, you're, you're the collector of the shrapnel and you're like, what in the world did I say? Well, what caused this? Because that's a person who is hurting. It's a person whose heart is full of anger and they've never really learned how to deal with those those anger issues. Number three is greed. Greed says, I owe myself. Greedy people believe they deserve everything that good good that comes their way. What's mine is mine. What's yours is mine. I've earned it. Um, (laughs) So it's hard for people who are greedy in their heart to give. Right? It's hard to part from, with things um, and stuff. Like angry people, they have a story to tell. Maybe they were raised in a home of, the, uh, of poverty, right? So there was no financial stability in the home growing up. And so that was, became the, the part of their grid and their thought processes that, you know what, I'm, I'm never going to let this happen to me when I get to be adult. I'm going to make sure I always have excess and, you know, so that I can try to you know, account for any little thing that may go wrong. For example, I know a man who is 65 years old who grew up in a home of poverty where they they really didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And so even at 65 years of age, he still absolutely packs his every crook and cranny in his kitchen full of food for fear that one day he's not going to have enough. When he has more than enough income, that's not even the issue. It is the orphan mentality that says, I, you know, and so it's, it's driven by a greedy heart. I have never met a self-professed greedy person. They th- say things like, well, I don't, you know, I don't struggle with greed. I'm just careful. I'm just fugal, frugal. And, you know, greed can hide behind a lot of good virtues. For example, greedy people are savers. And is not saving a good thing? Greedy people are planners. Is not planning a good thing? Uh, greedy people uh, tend to uh, make sure their financial future is secure. Isn't that not a good thing? But here's the problem. Fear is what drives the greedy heart. Fear. Which is supported with an endless cast of what ifs. What if my rent goes up? And what if the economy collapses? And what if the stock market, stock market crashes? And, and so underlying their mindset is this. Enough is never enough because there's a lot of what-ifs out there. 
enough is never enough. And so it's hard to tag ourselves and look in the mirror and say, man, I'm a, I'm a greedy person, but there are symptoms of it. And there's always another want that drives us to acquire more. And our appetite to acquire and to achieve is just never satisfied. And so they feel like they never quit, quite have enough, which of course is the very thing that they fear. It's a vicious cycle. Jealousy, God owes me. When we think about jealousy or envy, we immediately think of things that others have that we lack. Might be looks, skills, smarts, opportunities, health, inheritance. It could be a thousand different things. You see something in somebody else, you wish you had it, you, 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 know, you, you believe you deserve it, and, and so you're just jealous or you're envious of that person. And so... Um, this is, this is a very slippery slope. We assume that our problem is with the person that we're jealous or envious over. Our problem is not with that person. Our problem is with God. Because truth be told, God could have made me smarter. God had, could have given me the inheritance. God had, could have given me the jump on the job or God could, have, God could have done a lot of different things. And so even though I think the root cause of my envy or my jealousy is this individual who has what I want, no, actually the root cause is that I'm, I'm really angry with God. I'm angry with God because he didn't do it for me, but he did it for somebody else. And so the point is, there is an inequity there that God could have removed, but he chose not to. Why did my spouse have to die? and not their spouse? Why did I have to have cancer and not that individual? Why? And we can go through this scenario over and over and over and over again in our lives. Why do I have poor self-esteem? Why, why couldn't God made me smarter so that I could have done better on my SATs so I could have gotten in the college that I really wanted to go to? Why didn't God do that for me? And you see, jealousy is really an issue between you and God. What God did for others, he could have done for you also, but for some reason he didn't. And your problem isn't with the person. Your problem is with your creator. And deep in your heart, you feel like he owes you. He owes you. I've done this, 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 and this. God, you owe me. And there's one thing that serves as a healing balm in a heart that's filled with jealousy is to see that person that we're jealous over or envious over have a setback, right? They lose it all. They lose the money. They lose the, the looks or they lose whatever it is that I was envious over or jealous about. And that's why sometimes we have problems with people who are wealthy is because, man, why didn't God make me wealthy? Why didn't he give me all that wealth? And I'm envious over what they have. And, I, and if they lose it all, you know, the stock market crashes and they lose it all. It's like there's just this kind of like insidious sense of satisfaction in our hearts that says, man, I'm glad that happened to them. Although we don't want to admit it. Of the four heart invaders under consideration, jealousy is probably the one that betrays our hearts more than anything. You know, I can conceal my past. I can convince, you know, others about the reason for my anger. And I can... Uh, I can greed is easy to camouflage, but when you have that despicable feeling of self-satisfaction when those you're jealous over or envious over 
When they have a setback, you can't hide that. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and know my thoughts. Point out everything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So here's the review. You need to sit down with you and God in a place of no distractions. And you need to start listing out your symptoms of sins that you are confessing on a regular basis. And here's why you need to go through this exercise. Because all you've been doing all your life has been dealing with the symptoms you've never really got to the heart of the problem, which is the problem of your human heart. You've never gotten to the issue, the core-ish problem that is blocking the artery of your heart. And so when you've listed all of those out, you're asking God to search your heart, and you're asking God, because listen, as long as you have to keep confessing these every day, guess what? You never alleviate yourself from this guilt, this debt-to-debtor relationship with your Heavenly Father, and you always are feeling like there is tension in the room. And then we get to begging God, and we start, you know, trying to... um, Promise God things. Oh, God, I I tell you, if you forgive me, I promise you, I'll I'll share my faith three times next week, and I'll start giving 20%. And and so we go through all these gymnastics because we feel the tension in the relationship. Now, what I want you to do with that list is to take that symptom and put it under the category of the heart issue. Every single symptom you have will fit under one of those four categories. What's driving this is either guilt, anger, greed, or jealousy. One of those four. That's step number one, down the pathway that's going to lead to change in your life. Otherwise, you'll only deal with the symptoms and never deal with the heart issue. And without dealing with the heart issue, change will never take place. Step number two, I confess and repent of every sin. I confess and repent of every sin. Now, we all know that old habits die hard, right? Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy are all habit-forming. And like any habit, if it goes unchecked over time, it begins to define you, right? These disorders become such a part of us that we no longer view them as issues to be resolved. We begin viewing them as, you know, uh, just, this is just the way I am. This is, just the car- this is the way God made me, right? You know, all the men in our, my family are angry people, man. That's just the way we are. You know, I, 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 I can't help it. I'm just an emotional person. That's just the way I am. And so we begin making excuses for our heart issues rather than actually dealing with the issues of the human heart. And so um, there, are, there are habits, and if you want to break a habit, you need to develop a new habit to take its place. You know, when I was growing up, my mother smoked all the years we, I was growing up. And finally, she quit. And the reason she quit is because my wife and I, she had grandkids. They both had asthma. Mom, if you don't stop smoking, we can't come into your house anymore because it sets off their asthma attack. She quit like that. And so over time, after she quit, she began gaining weight. She says, I got to go back to smoking. I'm gaining weight. I said, no, Mom, you just need to quit the second habit you picked up when you stopped smoking, which is eating and, and, and get another habit in, in its place, right? So... So if, if, you, if you're going to stop one habit, you're always going to replace it with something else, right? So what we want to do is learn how to take the bad habits and replace them with something good, something that is beneficial in our lives. You stop defeating yourself when you stop deceiving yourself. You need to write that down. You stop defeating yourself when you stop deceiving yourself. Self-deception says, 
I just need to deal with the symptoms. I don't have a heart issue. That's deception. That's the deception of the evil one. Listen, Satan doesn't care how long you deal with the symptoms in your life because he knows nothing's ever going to change until you really get to the heart issue. Now all of a sudden, change begins to take place. And repentance, confession and repentance is a very much part of that heart issue that you and I experience. So, turn to 1 John chapter 1 for a moment, because I want to show you a verse of Scripture, and uh, we're probably going to stop right here. And we'll pick up where we left off next week, but I, I want you to get this one concept down. I don't know about you, but one of the verses that I learned early on in my Christian life was 1 John 1.9. I mean, you know 1 John 1.9. We confess our sins. God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our, our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, we love that verse, right? We love 1 John 1.9 because it says, man, all I have to do is confess it, and God's going to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and it's all good. <laughs> so I, I want to give you the whole context of this. All right, so 1 John, please understand, 1 John was written to believers, not unbelievers, right? To a group of Christians, and John was trying to show them how there is joy in having fellowship with God and other people. Remember, two most important relationships, God and others. How How do you have fellowship? And so he gives us the remedy for the first heart issue, guilt, I owe you. And it is confession and repentance. That is the cure, the antidote for that heart issue. And so, remember that issue says, I owe you, it's a debt to debt or relationship. Why confession and repentance? Well, the sin of guilt for my wrongdoing um, hinders my fellowship with somebody else. So like say, for example, uh, there's a pastor and I are going to be traveling to Texas in February we were at the state convention. He pulled up on his phone. We'd had some downtime, booked our flights. I said, hey, just put it on your, your credit card. I'll pay you back later, right? All right? Well, what if I did not pay him back? You think it's going to create a little tension on our relationship? Like, hey, dude, you owe me 240 bucks. When, when, when's the, is the check in the mail? Yeah, it's in the mail. <laughs> right? So every time we get together, be this, 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 there's no, not going to be much fellowship because there's that debt-to-debtor issue between the two of us. And by the way, I did pay my debt. Listen to what John says. 1 John 1, verse, uh, let's start in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from how much sin? All sin. Circle that word, all. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So, um, there is a difference between sin and fellowship and sin and relationship. So, I want to give you the the difference between judicial forgiveness and parental forgiveness. When we were born in this world, we were born in the world spiritually dead, right? We owed a debt to God for our sin, a debt we could not pay. That's why Jesus came into the world, to pay the debt that we could not pay so that he could say to us, I know you owe me this debt for your sin, but I'm canceling the debt. So when you gave your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you entrusted him to be Savior and Lord of your life, That's exactly what God did. The Bible says that God took your sin debt 
and he placed it upon the, the, the record of Jesus and took the righteousness of Christ, which is being in right relationship with the Father, and credited it to your accounts called the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us about this. It says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Now watch this. So the moment that transaction took place, God says he forgave you of how many of your sins? All of them. That's past, present, and future. Now this is an issue of relationship, which means there is nothing you could ever do that would cause God to cancel the relationship. He's the one who paid the debt. You didn't pay the debt. And by the way, you can't pay for the same debt twice. That's not fair. Jesus paid for all the debt. I've trusted Christ. I've been enveloped in the righteous. And the verb tenses in the Greek means it is a past completed action never to be repeated again. And so judicially, legally, God says, you are forgiven. I've removed the guilt. I've removed the shame. I don't want this relationship to be based on guilt, shame, and fear. I want this relationship to be based upon nothing but pure love, grace, and mercy. Now, that's the relationship. John is not dealing with relationship. John's dealing with fellowship. There's a big difference. Right? Parental forgiveness, forgiving our sins as Christians, is a relational act. But to keep us in close fellowship with God every day, that's where 1 John 1, 9 comes into play. For example, when my kids were growing up, if my daughter did something that, that was, you know, just wrong, and we, uh, you know, we had a problem, we had an issue, right? So I come to her as a, her father and said, honey, you know, this isn't right. You, you, need, you need to make this right. You need to change this or whatever was going on. You know, if she did something, I didn't like disinherit her. I didn't throw her out of the house. I didn't say you're not my daughter anymore. Nothing she could have ever done could have ever changed the fact that she's my daughter. Relationally, she's not my daughter, will always be my daughter. But when it comes to fellowship, like let's say it's something really bad and, you know, now all of a sudden, there's this debt-to-debtor relationship between the two of us. There's always tension when we come in the room. There's just not real close intimacy going on. And so we went through a period of time of that. You know, you know when, when kids hit their teenage years, they lose their minds, their brains go, you know, checked at the door, and things happen, right? So, you know, one time things went off, and she just like, went up there and just slammed her door. I said, don't ever do that again. I want you to slam your door. We need to talk about this. And the second time she slammed her door, so I took the door off the hinges and said, you've got to earn it back. Now, that didn't cancel the relationship, but it's an issue of fellowship. This is what John's talking about. We confess because it's the only way I can alleviate my guilt because I feel like I owe God something, right? So confession means to expose, to bring out in the open, to agree with God. Confession exposes our secrets and brings them out into the open, into the light, so the truth of God's Word can confront the lies that we are believing. Now, here's what I want you to get. Confession is a process. It's not just a one-time act. Here's where we get in trouble with this. I, I love this verse when I first got saved. It sounded good to me. I mess up. I admit it. God forgives me. I, I get to go on my merry way. Well, well, that's a great deal. I love that, Lord. Thank you. Uh, I just mess up. You know, for, confess it to you. You forgive me. and Boom, it's all removed, and I get to move on with my life. And clearly, I discovered a loophole, right? So over time, this verse became an escape hatch. So at night, what would we do? We lay on our bed and say, okay, God, I want to confess my sins. And sometimes we just confess, God, I just confess my sins to you and ask you to forgive. Thank you that you're forgiving and 
you're going to forgive and forget, and, and, and it's all good, God. Thank you. And so we just kind of lump it all together, like, you know, we put it in a sheet and just like lump it all together and throw it at God. Or we may say, you know, God, I confess for everything I did today that I said wrong, did wrong, thought wrong. Man, I, I just confess it all to you, God. And so now that I've emptied my sin bucket, I can go to sleep. Because like, now everything's good between us and God because, me and God, because after all, you know, God's faithful and righteous forgive me and cleanse me from all righteousness. So I've got that scapegoat. And so, man, it's, we're good. I've emptied my sin bucket. Here's the problem with that is that I knew in my heart that the next day I was going to be doing the same kind of stuff. And I'm only confessing the same kind of sin. And so night after night, I'd be emptying my sin bucket of the same sins that I emptied of yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before that. Now, there's a real danger that began to develop, a dangerous trend. When you are tempted to sin, you begin to reason to yourself, I know this is wrong, but if I go through with it, I can always confess to God. I know God's faithful and righteous to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So I'm going for it. Listen to me very carefully. Your confession habit begins to support your sin habit. Because you have an out. You found a loophole in the contract. You just empty the sin bucket. But watch this. There is absolutely no intention on your part to change anything. Because God's got to forgive me. After all, I'm his child. Very dangerous way to live. We're, confess- we're not confessing as a step towards changing anything. Oh, it's all about alleviating my guilt. It's all about just feeling better about myself and getting God off my back. And so nothing, nothing bad happens to me. And there are many reasons we think this way, but according to our twisted way of thinking, we think that confession puts everything back just the way it was before, and that is not true at all. The Bible, in the Bible, confession is always associated with change. Confession is one step in the sequence because confession then leads to repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. The two go hand in hand. It's two sides of the same coin. Repentance means I change the way that I think. Repentance roots out my inferior and faulty thought processes and replaces it with truth. Repentance is the word that we have forgotten in the Christian life. But it was very much used by the Old Testament prophets, by John the Baptist, Jesus himself, the first apostles. And, you know, I did a survey among 100 people, and I asked them the top five answers to give me to this question. Name a self-deception people use when choosing to sin. Here's number five. Just this once. I can handle this. Number four, I'll hide it. I'll cover it. No one will ever know. Number three, everybody else is doing it. Number two, I can't, it can't be wrong if it feels so right. And the number one answer I got from the survey was, I'll just do it because I can ask God to forgive me. I have to confess I just lied. I did not take a survey. I just went back to my own mental bank because I've used, every, I've used every one of those excuses multiple times. We'll pick up next week with the next step. and I'll, I'll give you the fill in the blank, though, on it. You have to resolve to make restitution. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 5, and here's why, here's why he said this. If at all possible, you've got to make restitution for your sin against somebody. 
And here's why. Because if I got to make restitution to them, I'm not going to be quite so apt to dive into it. For example, if I slander you, and slander means that I'm talking to other people about you because I want them to I want them to see you the same way that I see you. I don't like you. I think you're my enemy. And so I'm going to degrade you because I want them to believe the same things about you that I believe. And I slander you. How do you make restitution for that? That'd be like taking a feather pillow, walking up on the roof of your house on a windy day and casting the feathers into the wind because now that person told this person, that person, this person, this person. They Facebooked, they tweeted, they... How do you make up for that? There are some things you can't make restitution for. My dad could not restore my lost child. So the burden fell on me to cancel the debt that led to the debt-to-debtor relationship. See, that's a step towards change because now we have a wonderful relationship. But that would have never happened had I not taken the step necessary for that to happen. And unfortunately, not all of my siblings ever took that step And they still have no relationship with their father because they were unwilling to go through that process. That is not what God wants for you. God wants us to deal with the issues of the heart because it is what enables us to leave the tension from relationship between God and other people, brings the beauty of God's grace and mercy back into play, into the relationships we have, so that we're not relating to God on the basis of guilt, shame, and fear, but on the basis of grace, love, and mercy. And all of that was put into place because Jesus came to establish that relationship, removing the debt so that we would be free to experience God's incredible love and grace firsthand. And now Jesus says that you've experienced it. Let's bring it into every relationship we have in life. Let's bow our heads together.